welcome to the Diocesan Digest, a news outlet for the Episcopal Diocese of Oklahoma. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, Director of Media and Technology. In these short episodes, we will share the latest news, ministry stories, clergy, spotlights, and much more about the Diocese of Oklahoma each week. If you or your congregation wants to share a ministry story or other important news item, or even a particular topic you want to see covered on the podcast, please contact me at smith at epiok.org. A few announcements, folks. Churches, please remember to register for a diocesan convention online at epiok.org slash diocesan dash convention. Convention is right around the corner on November 1st and 2nd in Norman this year. Also be looking for details coming out soon on the walkabout details for the bishop candidates who will be in the diocese on December 6th, 7th, and 8th visiting different areas in the state of Oklahoma. For more information on the candidates, please visit epiok.org slash candidates. So this week's episode features Wayne Muller. Wayne was our guest speaker at this year's clergy conference a couple weeks ago out at St. Crispin's. Wayne is an executive leadership mentor, a therapist, a minister, community advocate, consultant, public speaker, and best-selling author of several books, including A Life of Being, Doing, and Having Enough, and Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives. A graduate of Harvard Divinity School, he has spent the last 35 years working with people suffering from abuse, alcoholism, poverty, illness, and loss. He also recently started an experiential community movement called Nuns and Nuns, where millennials and Catholic nuns create communities together and learn from one another to create lives of meaning, spirituality, solidarity, and social action. Wayne and I chat about some of the themes he addressed in his talk at clergy conference, including how human relationships get sacrificed on the altar of the capitalistic values of efficiency and productivity. Wayne is a deep well of spiritual wisdom and love. This is a delightful conversation, and I hope y'all enjoy. Here's Wayne. So Wayne, thanks so much for taking time to chat with me a little bit. We're so glad to have you in the diocese for a couple days, and I just, I loved the little piece I got to hear you talk about today, Um, and I wanted maybe to start, why don't we start just a little bit about your background, if you wanted to share where you're from and what you're all about. In a way, there are some through lines, and then you could also look at my life and go, well, how did that happen? And either story could be completely true. um there's a poem that i read this morning by william stafford called the way it is and it begins there's a thread you follow and it goes among things that change but it doesn't change Mm -hmm. and it's hard for others to see Mm -hmm. um 
but you have to explain about the thread and and you know some of us who are called by name by something larger than ourselves end up following this thread that you can barely see nobody else can see it and you know life changes you get given things things get taken away um you get called places you get sent away from places mm -hmm. um and how we um how i respond to those moments um and it really depends on how well grounded or or um how well i'm um i've been able to craft a community of beings who are nourishing and collaborative and you know where there's a mutuality mm -hmm. and a reciprocity of vision and dream and energy and passion mm -hmm. if i have that i can do anything and, uh, and and when i don't then i can get brittle and thin like anybody and um and especially in our culture which is pushing people into that right. binary choice of mm -hmm. zeros and ones the medium being the message um uh then you know there's no one stewarding that middle ground and um and so i've spent a lot of my time in that middle ground working right. with you know teenage runaways for example and then i was right out of the gate you know in between kids and their families and the law and school and mm -hmm. trying to find a win-win situation mm -hmm. in that um teenage alcoholics alcoholic families juvenile delinquents um um what sent me to the seminary was i was just i was going to too many rosaries with too many mothers who weren't coming to the community mental health center when one of their sons had to avenge the death of one of the other of her right. sons because it was just doing this back and forth thing which happens in really poor communities when there's so little at stake people fight harder for it in a way and um so i felt like i i needed to learn more about that language mm. of the heart the soul the mm. spirit that they were coming to warm themselves around to find some healing around what's impossible to imagine or ever heal from like losing one or more children mm -hmm. to violence that's all over and you feel powerless to stop it and um and so learning family systems theory and having great teachers was a great thing mm -hmm. but i also felt like i had to understand it in a larger mm -hmm. more eternal context mm -hmm. because life death suffering seems to be part of the deal and so even though i was you know, born and raised in the uh, presbyterian church and pretty much stayed in the christian lineage i've spent a lot of time studying and sitting with buddhists and Jews and Hindus and people so you know I learned a lot about um, mm -hmm. a lot about uh, what I think Jesus was trying to say um, 
uh, he didn't really have the opportunity that the Buddha did for you know 30 years right. to correct his, <laughs> his his students' errors of thought, um, and the disciples didn't really get it right very often anyway. Right. Um, so um, you know, it just felt like. And also, I grew up in a church that was very much involved in the civil rights movement and social justice. And so my understanding of what being church was was very different than the actual church I ended up being involved in by the time I went to seminary and was ordained, because it was like a second career already, mm -hmm. you know, because I had sort of jumped in with both feet into, mm -hmm. you know, working in addiction and you know, juvenile justice and things like that mm -hmm. with kids and families. So um, so then, ever since then, it's been a, a blending in different ways um, of various manifestations of either starting organizations or writing books or talking with people or, or gathering groups of people for different purposes that use whatever ability I have to understand human beings from the psychological and systems perspectives mm -hmm. as well as justice perspectives as well as spiritual uh, perspectives mm -hmm. and um, not everyone feels comfortable in all those right. worlds um, and honoring that people don't always feel comfortable mm -hmm. in those worlds so for me, it, it feels like whatever work I do has to be profoundly invitational mm. because that honors people's ability and need to say, no, uh, I don't feel it, I don't get it, it's not for me. Um, but then the people who do come are bringing their whole self right. or at least enough curiosity um, mm -hmm. that there's something to to work with. But for me, the power of invitation is really uh, strong mm -hmm. and it feels respectful and honoring yeah. as opposed to some of the other ways that people try to get people to commit or be involved in something they believe in really passionately. Right, um, right. I tend to be invitational. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But that's also one of the things that um, I think it's... If if we can make peace with that, <laughs> and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, essentially, the Buddha saying we get ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows yeah. is a version of sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And there isn't a, a, a direct line between our good intentions mm -hmm. and uh, and having a good outcome. Mm -hmm. We can do the right thing and not make the right thing happen. Right. And making peace with that is really hard mm -hmm. um, because there's kind of an illusion in America especially mm -hmm. that if we do it right, the right thing right. will happen. And right. we're sort of owed that mm -hmm. as a reward. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and people get really pissy when that doesn't happen. Yep. <laughs> do you think that th one of the tasks of clergy, and you're here at our cl clergy conference speaking mm -hmm. to our clergy mm -hmm. this week, is you keep saying being like finding this middle way helping people articulate um and sit in the middle way instead of getting so polarized like our national conversation and our right. just how and you, i love how you said that technology is a huge part 
of this divisiveness we're feeling and experiencing mm -hmm. in our culture today. Mm -hmm. um, what, how can clergy help this situation? And how, how do we deal with technology is a, a <laughs> second question. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, technology is, a, is, a, is an odd uh, thing. Uh, I remember going to Latin America in the 1980s um, when all kinds of horrible things were happening to people because of the various policies of the Reagan administration and people were being disappeared and you know tortured and murdered and um, and even back then I had just discovered uh, somebody I knew had a word processor and as a uh, and I was writing my um, thesis on it and I thought I was going to swear by a typewriter for my whole life, but once I realized you could cut and paste without actually cutting and pasting, which is what we used to do, I was absolutely converted. I was a real, I was, I was religious. I was, I was an apostle. You know, that was it for me. <laughs> um, I love that. And so, uh, at the same time, when I got to. Um, Latin America, I found that very quickly that governments were using those same computers mm -hmm. to start databases of people that they could keep track of that they were after, that they could then distribute in ways that they could never do before. And I immediately saw how, like everything, it could be used for good or it could be used for evil. And um, I thought at the time that technology then was ethically neutral. Mm. Um, what I'm finding among people who are like at the top of the food chain in, in AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the people who are actually the people who did the high level inventing of the technology and have started institutes at MIT and Oxford and Cambridge, um, their greatest worry is that they have no clue how it's going to go mm. and w whether we're going to have dominion or authority to make it go the way we want or if we've already passed that point. And that means it might or might not be ethically neutral. Mm -hmm because, um, I mean, a, a machine will pursue an algorithm with unbridled passion. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's given a task, it will do that task. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not so much that it r it's against human beings, but it's like if we were ants and a construction company had been told to clear this field and build a house, well, it gets rid of the ants, doesn't have anything against the ants. <laughs> it's just that the ants aren't part of the algorithm. <laughs> it, it's very possible, according to the you know people who really understand this, that w it's hard to fight being irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that it's very possible that in not that long a time, although some people think it's gonna take a lot longer, um, that w once humans become irrelevant, 
then it's difficult to begin a conversation with mm. technology. And to be at that level is almost bizarre mm. to think that way. Right. But this is these are the articles that I'm reading that are coming out of the people who are really the, the thinkers that people mm. go to mm. about it. Um, so one of the things that I'm actually trying to bring people together around, including them, a and anthropologists, and um, uh, archaeologists, is to look at the history of the human contribution to the world, because mm -hmm. people are being devalued constantly. Mm -hmm. Real income is consistently going down, in spite of whatever story we're being told. And um, if you're working 40 hours at minimum wage, they did surveys of all the counties in the United States where people who worked 40 hours for minimum wage could get an apartment, and when, when they added it all up, it came to zero. So the addition was pretty easy. Um, but what that means is that people can't work 40 hours. They have to work 60 hours. And if you're a single mother or if you're you know, a young couple or, or whatever, well, then that means the time that we would have spent with family and relationship with friendships building community well, we're just machines yeah exactly so we're not humans anymore because all the things that we say are precious like trust and love and compassion and collaboration and community well those all need time like unhurried yeah, nurturing and exactly yeah. so if you take time away from everybody mm -hmm. which is what's happening mm -hmm then everything that grows in time goes with it. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually living in a world where people already don't have time for friendships and community and family and in the way that yeah. they had before, and it's yeah. getting worse. And But nobody's saying that that's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So people then feel like they're individually failing mm -hmm. and so if i just get this book on productivity and get more done quicker then i'll have all this free right. time now i got the four hour work week you know mm -hmm. but uh, it's a it's a scam really mm -hmm. because uh people just they can't possibly find the time that they need and mm -hmm. then and then there's a kind of river of grief that runs through the whole country that also doesn't get tended to as grief and turns into frustration, mm -hmm. bitterness, mm -hmm. anger, and then other people are set up as straw people to be blamed for why this is happening. To it's you. like we don't even have time to think critically about anything anymore. So right. we're just like, boom, we're going to take this extreme stance on this because it's just too much to like sit in the reality of what's happening. Right. So it really mm. comes down to who can produce the most digestible narrative most quickly that's most compelling for more people mm -hmm. and then they win and then we just hate each other right and what they win i don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean you end up being right but right about i mean what do you, what, what's the prize yeah, like at what cost right at what cost are we gonna keep shooting each other up in malls you know what i mean yeah and what's the prize i mean is it like the price is right do you get a refrigerator I right mean, you know, what, what, yeah. what do you get exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> because what we lose is all that intimacy yes. and kindness and the tenderness of heart that's required to really be close 
to each other and learn and about humans one need we're created as relational right creatures right yeah it's really relationship that gets sacrificed mm -hmm. on the altar of efficiency and productivity mm -hmm. and devaluation mm -hmm. of the human, human contribution yeah. you know and so you know what i wonder about is can we find metrics that describe what humans really contribute to the world on the level of you know the libraries at alexandria or you know the floating city of flowers that the spanish found when they came to tenochtitlan and were absolutely they'd never seen anything in europe that was as beautiful as that and it seems like the the best of humanity kind of moves around to the culture that is ready to hold it as empires rise and fall mm -hmm. and but what is that right, thing right. that humans bring that allow us to do these magnificent mm -hmm. things that no longer is even in our conversation mm -hmm. about you know resurrecting our magnificence in terms of what humans mm -hmm. I mean there's some astonishingly beautiful things mm -hmm. in the world that human beings have done we don't talk we talk about productivity in terms of how fast people can get an Amazon package off the shelf and into well that's not the human contribution <laughs> I mean I hope not I mean, but it's becoming sort of like yeah. one of the few choices if you want to participate in the culture there's your role mm -hmm. otherwise you know we'll have a machine do it and it'll be cheaper anyway yeah so you know, resurrecting the magnificence of humanity is my next sort of part-time project mm. in my spare time. But naming th that, you know, it's like you said, having the time mm -hmm. to really name some of the deeper forces that are right. at work in our life. And I think that is a tsunami that's moving through that hardly anyone is talking about mm -hmm. or naming or recognizing. Mm -hmm. And it's really enormous because it involves everything. It involves everybody's daily life, how much money they can make, how much time they're going to have, whether machines are going to take over our jobs. Or, I mean, I, I was reading a paper last night where, you know, even if you make a deal with uh, machines that, okay, so that humans won't be hurt. Well, there's nothing to stop the machine from deciding, well, What's the best way to make sure humans aren't hurt? Well, put them in concrete bunkers a mile beneath the surface of the earth and keep them there, and nobody will be able to hurt them there. And mm -hmm. and off it will go, mm -hmm. and you can't... And so there's this translation mm -hmm. problem, and, you know, Mary Shelley saw it coming <laughs> when she wrote Frankenstein, mm. you know, but mm. we didn't listen. And mm -hmm. she, you know, she saw that um, hubris in our nature that was willing to imagine that we were smart enough yeah. to handle what we did. Mm. And that's not a smart bet on human beings. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like human beings, but we're not always the sharpest tool no. in the shed. No. <laughs>
we do tend to foil our nest and create things that get us in trouble yeah. and you know and if we were on our each other's side all the time that would be it would be a lot better but we're on each other's case instead mm -hmm. and we blame one another rather than hold one another around the ache of it mm -hmm. and i think there's that tenderness and that grief that we yeah don't really have permission to name or hold together mm -hmm. um, ultimately corrodes a lot of our sense of spaciousness, joy, ease, mm -hmm. hope, playfulness, yeah. um, um, the kind of barn raising mentality that used to be part of the American psyche that we're in this together and right. we're going to you know, do anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that seems to have been drained away by more of a, I'm going to get mine before you get right. yours. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's really our deepest heart's desire. I don't think people enjoy living like that, but somehow that's been the game that's gotten set up. Yeah. And so people don't feel like they have any choice but to play it. And if you're gonna play it, that's one you have to win. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really sad. Again, what we win is questionable at best. Mm -hmm. it's, we keep coming back to that refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm really <laughs> wanting a refrigerator. I don't know. But <laughs> 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 Thanks for joining us, y'all. Be sure to sign up for the Diocesan Newsletter at our website, epiok.org newsletter. And follow us on all of our social media platforms to stay up to date on what's going on in the Episcopal Diocese of Oklahoma. See y'all next week, and peace be with you.